If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover the management of the HIV-infected patient intrapartum. The diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis of HIV infection has improved considerably over the past 30 years, subsequent to the availability of effective antiretroviral therapy with fewer adverse effects, HIV infection has evolved from a terminal diagnosis to a chronic but treatable lifelong disease. The treatment objectives for all infected individuals are to maximally and durably suppress viral loads. Effective treatment prevents HIV disease progression and transmission, and that includes perinatal transmission. As for antepartum care, combination care with at least three drugs from at least two different classes of antiretroviruses is standard care for HIV infection in the United States. Patients who enter pregnancy on ART with complete viral suppression should continue their current therapy. If a component of the regimen is contraindicated in pregnancy, the regimen should be altered without therapy interruption. If pregnancy-associated vomiting interferes with ongoing adherence to therapy, antiemetics should be aggressively used prior to discontinuing any ART therapy. Treatment recommendations and the most commonly used ARTs in pregnancy have changed. Commonly used drug classes include nucleoside or nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors, non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, and of course, protease inhibitors. Fusion inhibitors, CCR5 antagonists, and integrase strand transfer inhibitors have been less commonly used in pregnancy. However, the number of integrase strand transfer inhibitors treated women who become pregnant will increase because most recommended treatment regimens for non-pregnant adults are integrase strand transfer inhibitor-based. The ideal regimen should demonstrate durable virologic suppression with immunologic and clinical improvement. It should be well tolerated with a simple dosage regimen and it should be shown to be effective in pregnancy in terms of reducing perinatal HIV transmission. Antiretroviral drug regimens used today are more convenient and better tolerated than previously utilized regimens and this has resulted in greater efficacy and improved adherence. At least one NRTI with high placental transfer should be included with the ART regimen if possible. Now, consultation, of course, with an HIV medicine subspecialist is advised for women with previous ARV use, that's antiretroviral therapy use, for maternal indications who demonstrate significant ARV resistance upon testing or when there is a suboptimal response to the antiretroviral therapy. 
Okay, so here's a clinical pearl. Data has shown that increased or longer duration of antenatal antiretroviral prophylaxis starting prior to 28 weeks of gestation for each additional week of therapy actually corresponds to a 10% reduced risk of HIV transmission after adjusting for viral load, mode of delivery, and even the sex of the infant. Therefore, it's important to have early initiation of therapy as soon as possible. Moreover, expanding infant post-exposure prophylaxis does not fully substitute for the protective effect of increased maternal antiretroviral therapy and its duration. All right, so remember, HIV treatment during pregnancy reduces maternal disease progression, and both ART and viral load at delivery are independent risk factors for HIV transmission. Therefore, ART is recommended for all women independent of viral load suppression. In addition to maternal benefit, this strategy protects neonates born following spontaneous rupture of membranes or spontaneous labor before a planned C-section can occur in those who qualify for it mechanisms of protection using ARVs with good placental transfer and permitting adequate systemic drug levels to be reached in the infants at birth. This is likely important when the infant is exposed to virus within the birth canal and is the recipient of a maternal fetal blood transfusion during uterine contractions. Antiretroviral therapy can also decrease genital tract viral load and can be excreted into genital tract secretions. Now, zidovudine and 3TC are present in high concentrations within genital secretions, another potential mechanism of protection against HIV transmission. Most perinatal HIV transmissions in the U.S. occur in women who are not known to be HIV infected prior to the birth of their child. Okay, let's take a little break, and when we come back, we'll specifically cover intrapartum management of the HIV-infected patient. As for intrapartum management, intrapartum IV, zidovudine, is no longer recommended for the HIV-infected woman who receives combination antiretroviral therapy, antepartum, and who has viral suppression. That's defined as an HIV RNA viral load less than 1,000 copies per ml during late pregnancy. All HIV-infected women should continue antiretroviral therapy during the intrapartum period, both for maternal and to reduce perinatal transmission. Now, intrapartum zidovudine is no longer recommended in virally suppressed women because zidovudine therapy to reduce perinatal HIV transmission in women who are treated by combination antiretroviral therapy has not been evaluated in randomized clinical trials. Now, in addition, multiple studies have shown extremely limited perinatal HIV transmission in women with HIV RNAs fewer than 1,000 copies per ml who did not receive intrapartum zidovudine. So, the newest perinatal HIV treatment guidelines suggest that intrapartum zidovudine administration, consistent with the elective cesarean delivery recommendations, should be adhered to, once again, in patients who are taking combination antiretroviral therapy who have viral suppression, intrapartum zidovudine is no longer recommended. For intrapartum patients, however, with viral loads greater than 1,000, IV zidovudine should be given as a loading dose of 2 mg per kilo given over one hour, 
followed by a maintenance dose of 1 milligram per kilo per hour. Other antiretroviral therapy should be taken with a sip of water except stavudine. Now remember that stavudine is antagonistic to dizavudine. Therefore, it should be withheld. Zidovudine should be given independent of maternal resistance because it crosses the placenta readily and is metabolized to the active triphosphate form within the placenta, which provides prophylaxis to the infant both before and after exposure. Now, when delivery is indicated for obstetric reasons, delivery must not be delayed for Zidovudine administration. During labor, every effort should be made to avoid instrumentation that increases the neonate's exposure to infected maternal blood and secretions. Recommendations include leaving the fetal membranes intact for as long as possible, avoiding fetal scalp sampling and fetal scalp electrode placement, and of course, not doing an episiotomy, which is frowned upon as routine care anyway. Remember that episiotomies are no longer considered a routine part of obstetrical management. Now, even assisted operative vaginal deliveries should be done only selectively in patients with HIV in order to prevent any breaks of the fetal skin. Now, in cases of uterine atony, methergen should be avoided if possible. Now, here's why. Protease inhibitors are CYP3A4 inhibitors, and concomitant ergotamine use is associated with an exaggerated vasoconstrictive response. Now, on the other hand, non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors are CYP3A4 inducers and have the potential to decrease methergen levels and result in inadequate treatment effect. So once again, remember that methergen in patients that are on protease inhibitors or non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors can be problematic. Regarding elective cesarean delivery, schedule C-section at 38 weeks gestation when dates are confirmed by early ultrasound should be performed in women with HIV RNA levels greater than 1,000 copies per ml and for women with unknown HIV RNA levels near the time of delivery. Now, patients who are having an elective cesarean delivery should receive IV zidobidine for three hours prior to surgery, in addition to prophylactic periop antibiotics, which should also be administered. Now remember that IV zidovudine in women undergoing vaginal delivery who were on combination antiretroviral therapy with viral suppression were no longer recommended to receive IV zidovudine, but that does not apply to those undergoing elective cesarean section. Also, cesarean delivery after the onset of labor or after spontaneous rupture of membranes does not protect against HIV transmission. So delivery for obstetric indications is recommended in these patients irrespective of viral load. So that's a clinical pearl. C-section after the onset of labor or after spontaneous rupture of membranes does not protect against HIV transmission, so delivery for routine obstetric indications is recommended in these patients irrespective of viral load. Lastly, a quick word about spontaneous rupture of membranes. Increased duration of membrane rupture is associated with perinatal HIV transmission, but the incremental increased risk of transmission is actually not clinically significant. Meta-analysis of over 4,700 deliveries determined that the risk of HIV transmission increases by 2% over the baseline transmission risk after adjusting for all other factors that influence transmission. For each hour increment, 
following the membrane rupture. So here's what this looks like. Presuming a patient on combination antiretroviral therapy with an undetectable viral load has a baseline perinatal HIV transmission rate of about 2%. The risk of transmission after one hour of membrane rupture would be 2.04%. And after 8 hours, the risk of HIV transmission would be 2.3%, given that prolonged SROM does not appreciably increase the HIV transmission risk in term patients. It is not recommended that elective cesarean section be performed because it is unlikely to reduce perinatal HIV transmission and that risk does not really change much despite duration of rupture. All right, so that's a clinical pearl and a change in management that happened years ago when the duration of rupture was thought to directly influence the rate of HIV transmission. So once again, while there is a link with increased duration of membrane rupture and perinatal HIV transmission, the incremental risk does not seem to be clinically significant. And once again, elective cesarean delivery is not recommended because it is unlikely to reduce perinatal HIV transmission in women being actively managed using oxytocin for augmentation or induction. All right, that wraps up our quick review of the HIV infected patient and intrapartum care. We'll see you next time.